0: It's also possible for a lawyer to be just plain stupid, isn't it? I'm aware we have a contract in place. Please, I'm an attorney. You have options. I have a lawyer. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today, we're talking about the law again, and specifically, what it's like to be a lawyer. Well, at least we'll give you a little flavor of that, because it's really hard to explain. Oh, what's it like to be a lawyer? Uh, I don't know, really. It's just what I did. I talked about learning how to think like a lawyer. I talked about learning how to take the bar exam. And going to law school teaches you that. But going to law school doesn't teach you anything about what it's like to actually be a lawyer. And so, what I thought I'd do is touch a little on that. Now, obviously, this is my own unique experience. Everybody who becomes a lawyer, just like everybody who becomes a teacher, or a salesman, or an artist, everybody has their own unique path. Everybody has their own unique experience. I'm sure there are similarities between the paths that an artist might follow with that of any other artist, or any other teacher, or any other salesman. But just like everything, we experience the world our own way, from our own frame of reference, bringing to it our own baggage. So I guess that's my caveat. This isn't what it's like for everybody to be a lawyer, but I'm going to give you a little flavor of what it was like for me to be a lawyer. Before I get into too much detail, I'm going to throw this disclaimer out there, or this warning, or this caveat, I'm not sure what it is. One of the things about being a lawyer is you are bound by a code of ethics, and I don't violate that code of ethics. I never have, I never will. One of the cardinal rules that you have is the attorney-client privilege. Anything a client tells you in confidence stays in confidence. You're not free to reveal that. You can't talk about it. If a guy comes into my office, retains my services, and says, I killed the guy, I can't tell people, oh yeah, he did it. I'm not allowed to do that. Now, that knowledge does prohibit me from doing certain things for that guy, For instance, if he's arrested for murder and tried for murder, I can't put him on the stand and have him testify I didn't do it when I know that he did. That's what we call suborning perjury. I know that he did it, so I can't put him on the stand knowing that he's going to lie. That's also an ethical thing. I can still defend him. I just can't put him on the stand knowing he's going to lie. That's a no-no. Oh yeah, that's one of the tricky little dilemmas criminal lawyers sometimes face. I know the guy did it, but I got to represent him. I mean, you don't have to represent him, but if you're doing criminal law, that's something that can come up. And I'm going to tell you how you live with that, because that's something you do have to live with at times. If you're representing a murderer, and you know he did it, he's still entitled to a defense. And if you're a criminal lawyer, and you represent criminals, that's going to come up. But before I go down that road, my point in telling you about the attorney-client privilege is, anything that I say in this podcast, any stories that I tell, either here or anywhere... They are based on public information. I have never and would never divulge a client confidence. You just can't do it. So any stories that I tell are based on stuff that's of public record. And I've done enough cases where the stuff that I'm going to tell you is all public record. You can go find it in court documents. You can order transcripts. You can find it in judgments. If it's public record, I can talk about it. If it's a client confidence, (laughs) nope, sorry. So I'm just letting you know that any stories that I tell about particular cases, even though I'm not naming names... It's all public record. But before I get to any of that kind of stuff, I just want to kind of lay the framework for you for becoming a lawyer. I mean, once you graduate school, once you pass the bar, you've got to figure out what you're going to do. We all think of lawyers, oh, those people in the movies, those people on TV shows. They go to court. They do trials in front of juries. That's what a lawyer does. Well, that's one of the things that lawyers do for sure. But there are so many different kinds of lawyers. I was one of those guys who goes to court. I've tried cases. I've gone to the appellate division. I've gone to the Supreme Court of New Jersey. I've argued cases in all of those places. I've been in federal court. I've done a little bit of everything. Because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be on my feet. I wanted to be arguing. I wanted to be talking to juries. I wanted to be talking to judges. I wanted to be that guy. One of the greatest scenes from movies that I remember is Al Pacino in the movie And Justice for All where he's giving the impassioned speech in front of the jury and in front of the judge. The whole system is out of order. Oh, I remember that vividly. When I started, I didn't think I was going to be that guy. I slowly became that guy. But that speech was awesome. And if you've never seen the movie And Justice For All, check it out. Parts of it are shockingly true. Parts of it, not so much. The shockingly true parts are the politics involved in being a lawyer. But they do take a lot of dramatic license. But you kind of have to if you're going to take a courtroom scene and put it in a movie. Courtroom scenes are usually boring, unless you're involved in it. It's not like TV. Now, don't get me wrong, I always tried to make it entertaining, but it's not like TV. And I'll come back to that. Because that's not the only kind of law there is to practice. There are so many different areas of the law. None of them involve going to court. And there's a lot of lawyers who never set foot in a courtroom. They never argue a case in front of a judge. They never pick a jury. They've never done a deposition. They've never completed interrogatories. These are all parts of the discovery process. Discovery is part of the law in a civil case and in a criminal case. The discovery process is where you get information before trial because we don't do trial by ambush. We're supposed to disclose what we have. The other side is supposed to disclose what they have. The goal being maybe we can reach an agreement once we understand what the issues are. But depositions, interrogatories, these are all ways to get information from the other side. And there are tons of attorneys who've never done discovery because that's not the field of practice they chose. What do I mean by that? Well, for instance, there's a whole field of law called trusts and estates. And what's that about? Creating trusts and handling estates. Estates meaning the estate of somebody who's passed on. A trust is a financial situation where you put all of the money, all of the stocks, all of the bonds into a safe place where a trustee administers it. I had to take courses on it. I had no interest in it. I had no desire to be a trusts and estates attorney, but a lot of people do and they make a lot of money doing it. You can become an attorney who specializes in mergers and acquisitions, which is a business field. And as you might expect, you're involved in businesses buying businesses, businesses merging with businesses. And if it sounds boring to someone like me who needs to be in front of a jury or needs to be in front of a panel of judges, it is. But again, there's people who excel in that area. They love doing that. They love drafting financial documents. They love drafting contracts. That's a whole area of the law that people spend their careers in and make boatloads of money doing. You can become a real estate lawyer. All you do is handle real estate. People are buying and selling real estate all of the time. People are renting real estate all of the time. You need to draft leases. You need to draft contracts for the sale of a house or a building. You need to do home inspections. You need to do closings. Now, truth be told in real estate law, dirty little secret. There's a universal form that you're supposed to use in real estate sales. You can add riders to it, which is like an addition to the contract. But everything is very form-based in real estate law. So there's not a lot of heavy lifting for an attorney. And if you ask the staff at any attorney's office, they'll say they do all the work and they're not lying. But real estate law is a whole other practice that you can get into as a lawyer. You don't go to court. There's no discovery. There's no juries. There's no judges. You draft contracts and show up at closings. Basically, that's it. And I've done a little bit of all of these things. I started out in a general practice office. We focused primarily on criminal law and family law. And there was a lot of court work. There was a lot of appellate work. But you also have clients who come in who want to sell a house or they need to sue their contractor or they want to buy a business. And so as a lawyer, you have to know how to do these things. You have to know how to prepare a closing. You have to know how to draft a contract for the sale of a business. You have to know what to look for. And if you do that and you do it well and you decide you like real estate practice or you like mergers or you like any of these things, you find out you like drafting wills because there's always going to be a client who needs a will. Oh, by the way, you got me out of jail. Now I need a will. If you find you like doing those things, you can change the course of your career by practicing in a different area. If you decide, for instance, you hate going to court after you've gone, you can steer your career in another direction. For me, I knew when I went to law school, I wanted to get into the courtroom. My ideal job was to be a prosecutor. I wanted to do that. But you have to apply for the jobs and you have to get hired. And most of the time, they like you to have some experience in court. One of the things that I had going for me was that, as part of my final year in law school, I had an internship at a local prosecutor's office. And in Ohio, under the rules at the time, third-year law students could practice law. You could go to court and you could try cases as long as you were supervised by the main prosecutor. And so even before I graduated law school, I was in court trying speeding cases. I was at a local prosecutor's office, and they would have these tickets come in, and the court dates would be set, and people contesting a speeding fine, if they wanted to go to trial, they could have a trial on their speeding ticket. And so I learned how to do trials at a very basic level, proving somebody was speeding. Which, by the way, is not an easy thing to do under the rules of evidence. You don't get to just show up and say, yeah, he was speeding, find him guilty. It sounds like it would be that easy. It's not. You actually have to prove that they were speeding. I know, right? Wait, wait, I have to prove he was speeding? The cop wrote him a ticket. That's not that easy. When you have a ticket accusing somebody of speeding, the state still has to prove its case. You have to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that the person in question actually exceeded the speed limit. Well, how do you do that? Well, you bring the cop in to testify. That's number one. How did the cop establish that he was speeding? Well, he used a radar gun. Well, when you bring the cop in, he has to testify about how the radar gun works. And back in the day, there was a way to calibrate radar guns. And he had to establish that the police officer followed all the steps to properly calibrate the radar gun before he started his shift. Because if he didn't, that's a defense. If the cop screwed up the calibration of the radar gun before he used it, and that's the basis for the ticket, you've got a viable defense to the speeding charge. Well, Your Honor, if the gun wasn't working correctly, how can we know that Officer Jones was correct in saying that my client was doing 75 miles an hour in a 55 zone? And that's how you win a case, on the defense side. On the prosecution side, I have to prove that the cop showed up on the day of his shift, took out all of his equipment, pulled the radar gun out, went through the checklist on how to properly calibrate radar guns, established that the gun was operating properly on the day of the speeding offense... Prove that the officer was capable of reading and calibrating the radar gun. And if I can do that, then I can win. Now, you might not think that getting an officer to testify about how to calibrate a radar gun is very exciting. And you'd be right. It's not. But that's what you have to do if somebody's contesting a speeding ticket. And as you might imagine, the officers really love it when they have to come in and testify about stuff like that. But you know what? If you want to defend yourself in court, you're allowed to do that. And if you want to mount a defense to a speeding case, and if you happen to know that Officer Jones is not good at calibrating his guns, or even if you have a reason to believe that he might not be, maybe you do want to take that to trial. That's what the right to trial is there for. You're allowed to defend yourself. And it's the state's obligation to prove its case. And if the state can't, the state loses. That's what the presumption of innocence is all about. You're innocent until proven guilty, and it's on the state to prove that you're guilty. Now that whole burden of proof thing, that actually takes me back to one of my first trials. Now it wasn't a jury trial, it was a trial in front of the judge, which by the way is something you can do. As a defense attorney, you can request a bench trial, which means only the judge is going to hear the evidence, or you can request a jury trial. I had a case involving a kid who was arrested for trespass, and his family hired the firm and the boss put me on the case. Now the thing that he was charged with was trespass, which means you're on somebody else's property without their permission. He was an 18-year-old kid, and he was supposedly trespassing at the high school, doing stupid kid stuff. I looked at the ticket. It was only a ticket. It was a misdemeanor offense. It was a minor little thing. I couldn't even get a good plea deal on this one. They wanted to teach this kid a lesson. So I looked at the ticket. The officer who'd written the ticket arrested the kid, and I'm just going to make up the address because I don't remember the address, but he wrote the ticket for trespassing at 17 Main Street. Well, I happened to know that the high school was on Elm Street, So I looked at the town map and I saw 17 Main Street was a block down and was a private residence. So the prosecutor went through his case, presented the officer, put the ticket in evidence, questioned the officer. Yeah, I answered a call. Mischief. Went to the high school. Saw some kids running. Picked the kid up at 17 Main Street. Wrote him a ticket. Sent him on his way. That was basically the state's case. Cross-examination is my turn to shine. Now, the offense of trespass is being on a location where you're not supposed to be, where you have no permission to be. So I asked the officer... You found him at 17 Main Street, correct? Of course, that's where I wrote the ticket for. I then asked the officer, You don't know who lives at 17 Main Street, do you? And the officer paused and said, No. Now, I took a chance on this one, because you're not supposed to ask questions you don't already know the answer to. But I was pretty sure that I knew the answer. I asked, Did you talk to the residents of 17 Main Street? And the officer said, No. So then I asked, You were called for a trespass at the high school, correct? And the officer said, Yes but you wrote a ticket for 17 Main Street, correct? And the officer said, yes. Okay, thank you, officer. And I stopped asking questions because the officer had just given me all I needed to defend the case. The kid was charged with trespassing at the high school, which was on Elm Street. The ticket was for 17 Main Street. The officer hadn't talked to anybody at 17 Main Street, didn't know who lived there, didn't know anything about the people at 17 Main Street. And at that point, I rested. And they said, Judge, I move that the case be dismissed. The state hasn't proven that the defendant was not supposed to be at 17 Main Street. The state may be arguing that he trespassed at the high school, but they didn't prove that. He was picked up at 17 Main Street, and nobody knows why he was there. And the judge said, Mr. Gamer Dude, you're right, and dismissed the case. Now, that's all well and good for a stupid kid doing stupid kid things at the high school. And you feel all good about yourself getting the kid off because you got the stupid kid off for being stupid. If I'd have lost, he'd had to pay a fine. There were really no consequences there. But I won because I was right. The state didn't prove its case. Where that becomes difficult, though, is where you get more serious crimes. I didn't just do trespass cases. That's not all there is. There are drug cases. There are sexual abuse cases. There are murder cases. And when you're doing criminal defense, you have to defend all of that crap. One of the hardest cases that we had, and one of the things that made me realize I really wasn't cut out for criminal defense was when my boss took on a case involving a stepfather who was accused of sexually abusing his two stepdaughters. Now, I didn't have anything to do with the negotiations of that case. That was a really significant case because of the charges and all the counts that this guy was facing. And I'm going to save the details of that specific story for a different episode because that was, boy, that was some kind of case. But my office, the office that I worked out of, we were representing a credibly accused child molester. And boy, when that's a reality, you have to start thinking about what you want to do. Because you have to defend that guy. If you're going to do criminal defense, you have to defend that guy. And so what you have to wrestle with is how. And of course, the state had evidence to support its case, witness statements and doctor reports and so on. So it was pretty clear that there was little question that this guy did it. So how do you defend that guy? How does a criminal defense attorney come to it in his head or in her head that this guy is entitled to a defense? Well, what you have to do is you have to have an internal discussion with yourself. And you have to understand that as part of the way the system works, everybody is entitled to a defense. The way our system works is the state has to prove its case. If the state didn't have the burden of proof, then the state could come around and arrest anybody on any trumped up charge and throw them in jail, sentence them without a trial. They could do it to you, they could do it to me, they could do it to your Uncle Roy. The criminal defense attorney's job is to protect the rights of everybody. And you do that by giving a defense to somebody who's been accused, whether they did it or not, to make sure that the state can prove its case. If the state can't prove its case, then the case should be thrown out. You don't just get to make stuff up and accuse people and put them in jail just because you don't like them. You have to have evidence in order to obtain a guilty conviction. And my job as a criminal defense attorney is to make sure that the state has that evidence. It's not only to protect the rights of the client that I'm representing in a particular case, but it's to protect the rights of everybody who might be in a similar situation. Because if the state can get away with just locking up everybody they feel like locking up, then we're all in trouble. The criminal defense attorney's job is to represent his client, yes, but also to protect the system. And that's how you justify it. They're not easy mental gymnastics you have to go through either to get yourself to the place where you can represent a guy like that. I wound up having to go to court on that particular case, and I'll share the details in another episode. But I had to go to court on that case for a sentencing hearing, and it was difficult. Because you're standing up next to a child molester. And it was a big case. I was in a small town. It was a big case. I was on the news. I was on the front page of the local papers. I was the attorney standing next to the dirtbag. That's why criminal defense was always so hard for me to do. I knew why I was doing it. I knew what I had to do. And it was all fun and games when you're doing it for an 18-year-old idiot who's supposedly trespassing on the high school property. It changes, at least it did for me, mentally, when you're representing a child abuser and you see the evidence. It changes how you think about the case. And it changes how you want to do your job and what job you want to do. So I've handled some interesting cases in my life, both from the criminal defense and the criminal prosecution side. I didn't stay with criminal law for all of my career. I only did it for the first four or five years. I loved it, but it was hard work. But I'm going to save the details of those cases because there's some interesting stuff that I did. I just wanted to kind of give you an overview of what the thought process is like, what you're facing when you're a lawyer. But I wanted to close with a story that's more about the practice of law from a practical standpoint. And it's something that they don't teach you in law school. And it's something you have no way of knowing until you get out there to do it. And it's going to sound silly and it may sound stupid, but it's one of the realities of life that you don't even think about as a lawyer. And it also is kind of an indictment of the system when you think about it. One of the first things that I had to do was make a court appearance. It was on a case I'd never heard of for a client that I'd never met. The boss was supposed to go over to a preliminary hearing, which is where they determine whether or not they're going to bind the guy over for an indictment at the common pleas level. That's the way the court system worked in Ohio. So this preliminary hearing was scheduled for something like 1.30. And the boss told me just before lunch, all right, you're going over and you're going to appear at this hearing. And I said, what? I don't know the case. I don't know anything about it. He shook his head and he said, don't worry about it. All you need to do at the hearing is tell the judge that an important witness, Mr. Green has not showed up. And I said, what? We have an important witness on this case? And the boss said, yeah, just tell him Mr. Green hasn't showed up. And me and my naivete had no idea what he was talking about. So I dutifully went over to the court. 130 rolls around. They call the case. I said, Mr. Gamer Dude appearing for Mr. Smith. And the judge said, ah, oh, Mr. Gamerdude, I expected your boss here today. And I said, Your Honor, my boss couldn't be here. He told me to inform the court that an important witness, Mr. Green, has not appeared. And the judge looked at me and nodded and said, we'll carry the case for a week. And that meant he was adjourning the case for one week. We'd revisit it in a week. And that was it. That's all I had to do. So the case was adjourned. I left the court. When I got back to the office, I asked the boss, who is Mr. Green? I didn't know we had a witness in this case. And the boss looked at me and grinned and shook his head and said, oh, yeah, Mr. Green means money. We haven't been paid yet on this case. We're not showing up in court until the guy pays us. And I felt dumb because, oh, yeah, Mr. Green means money. But I didn't think that attorneys would be like that. I didn't think that's the way the system worked. I thought we had a case, you showed up in court. And we did show up in court, but we told the judge, we're not doing anything until we get paid. And the judge knew that. The judge understood the Mr. Green reference. I didn't. I didn't know there was secret attorney code for money. That's how I learned. Mr. Green didn't show up, we don't appear. It was really an eye-opening experience for me because I realized, oh yeah, it is a business. It's not just representing clients. We got to get paid for this stuff. It was the first time that I had that realization, but in that office, it was not the last time. We were in the middle of representing one client. He hadn't paid us for the one case. He got arrested again while we were representing him on the first case. And the boss put me on the phone with him and said, tell him we're not appearing on this case until he pays us on the first one. And so I did. And so the guy sat in jail. It hadn't occurred to me that, oh yeah, we really do have to get paid for this stuff. I just assumed it happened. It really was an eye-opening lesson. That's just like the first two pages of my legal career. That just barely scratches the surface. That's like the foreword to a long book. But I wanted to share it with you because I thought you might be interested. It might give you a little perspective on me and on the legal system. Is it a racket? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just like everything, it's a racket. It has its good points. It has its bad points. It's very, very interesting. And it can be very, very frustrating, too. And I'll tell you more about it down the road. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. As always, I can't thank you enough for your support. And I really do appreciate all the time you spend listening to these episodes. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.